Good morning. Oh, that was weak. Good morning. That's a little better. If you're watching online, we're glad you're with us, but we really wish that you were with us in person today, and we look forward to the day that you can do that. We're glad you're safe and protected and at home, but boy, uh, let me agree with Ryan and Jim. Today just feels so good. Uh, and it may be that things are closer to normal with the Lairs and the Joneses present. That's the way it's supposed to be. Um, and just to show you how grateful we are that they're here, we turned off the furnace in the auditorium so Brian and Tara from Montana would feel good. And if you see Jody, he's got shorts on. He's from Texas. We're a compromise. Jody actually said he forgot his pants and shorts. Shorts is the only thing he had, so we're grateful he used those to be here this morning. It is, it is really good to be together. Hey, take your Bibles and open up to that passage Tony just read there in Colossians. For three hours each week, I have the blessing of hanging out with ninth graders at Oklahoma Christian Academy. They're off of 9th Street in Edmond. I teach a Bible class there. Um, and it's, it's an interesting experience. If you've ever hung out with ninth grade boys, it's a group of about 15 of them. Life is interesting for ninth grade boys. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited. One of, one of our very own, kind of one of our adopted own, um, Sean is in that group. And so I get to hang out with them. And, and we talk about all sorts of deep. I mean, it's really the, the curriculum title is deep. We talk about some big issues. Um, who is Jesus? Who is the church? What about God and science and all of those questions that are kind of prickly? Well, there's this running joke in our class, and it's not just my class. I've heard other teachers and people do this. You know, sometimes it's hard to keep their focus. They're ninth grade boys. They kind of space out. And so you'll ask a question, and sometimes they get that deer in the headlight look like, who are you and where am I? You know, but the joke is, if your name is called and a question is asked, just say Jesus. And there's a good chance, 90% of the time, you're going to be right. Who is this gospel book about? Jesus. Who was the prophet talking about? Jesus. What's seven times nine? Jesus. Well, in a roundabout way, there's some truth to that. So that's, that's the running joke. Well, this text in Colossians, and in fact, the entire book of Colossians basically can be summed up with that statement. The answer is Jesus. All the problems this church in Colossae is facing, every question, every doubt, every, every tension in that church, Paul writes the book of Colossians to say, look, the answer is Jesus. And last week, Jim started this journey through the book of Colossians, and I want to show you this incredible text that was just read by Tony that serves as this kind of preemptive strike, if you will, for the entire book of Colossians and for all the issues. You see, in Colossae, this church, these, these Christians, this young Christian community is being challenged by people who've come along and said, your salvation isn't quite there yet. You're missing something. Maybe you've got, to, you've got to give yourself to the practice of asceticism, that you've got to deprive yourself of all these things. And until you get to there, you don't really have it. Or you've got to follow all of the Jewish customs and dietary laws and festivals. And until you do that, you're not really there just yet. 
You haven't had a special insight of knowledge. You haven't had a vision of sorts. You're not worshiping the right angels, the spirits. Good for you, but you're not there yet. And what Paul comes along to say in the book of Colossians is, do you have Jesus? Because if you have Jesus, you don't need anything else. Amen. You've got everything you need. And to set that argument up, Paul begins, or he kind of continues this train of thought, but he, he jumps into this text of Colossians chapter 1 with this majestic hymn or poem to Jesus. In fact, in your Bibles, if, if you look in your Bibles, some of you, they set this off. It's not in the typical paragraph or prose. Some translations move it into its own kind of pattern. That's because the rhythm, the vocabulary, the movement of this statement is some type of poem or even some scholars have suggested it's an early church song, something that the Christians in Colossae maybe were singing in this young church. And Paul reaches into their songbook, or he reaches into this poetry, and he says, here, let me show you why the, the words you're saying and singing are actually the answer to everything bothering you in, in, in Colossae. Paul had never been to this church, to the best that we know. And he's only heard of them through the efforts of other people. Epaphroditus has gone in and he's evangelized this group. So he knows they're young. He knows they're struggling. And he knows everybody is, is pulling at their faith. We don't know if he wrote this poem or if he borrowed this poem. But this poem, this, this imagery is fantastic in the book of Colossians. And it's, it even sets up for the rest of the book. Paul will occasionally reach back to words and images that he alludes to here to draw out that point as he goes through the challenges in the church at Colossae. I mean, this poem is wonderful. It's, it's something, some of those things in life you just can't say with words. You have to have poetry and imagery. And that's why we have love songs. It just sounds weird to quote the words of a love song sometimes, doesn't it? You got to sing them. They got to flow. They got to move. So Paul, he goes back and he literally, in, in my mind, he backs up this theological dump truck. And he reaches back to Exodus and he reaches back to Proverbs and he reaches back to Psalms and he reaches back to other prophets. And he's piling up images and language trying to show them how majestic Jesus is. So, he uses repetition in this poem. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. He created heaven and earth, and he is reconciling earth and heaven. It's this repetitive flow to this statement. He piles up prepositions. Creation was made in him and through him and for him. And eight different times, Paul uses the word all. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things were created. All things have been created through him. He is before all things. He is the first place over all things. In him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. He is pleased to reconcile all things. Have I left anything out? 
all, every, everything, everywhere is Jesus. Now the problem with poetry and music is that it's, it's not always literal. You know, we, we borrow images and languages. We don't really mean it exactly the way it says it. It's just trying to help us envision. So if you're a Katy Perry fan, baby, you're a firework. If you're a Michael Buble fan, you're a falling star. You're a getaway car. You're the line in the sand when I go too far. And if you're an Elvis fan, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. But we don't mean that literally, do we? But the thing with this poem is Paul's not using imagery. He means these things literally. Jesus isn't the pretend all of everything. He is the actual all of everything. So I want to walk you through just quickly some of these incredible statements that Paul makes. If I were to take you and transport you from the auditorium this morning and somehow jump in a time machine and we go back to first century Rome, you start poking around and looking around and you're going to notice this reoccurring, reoccurring image or statue or something everywhere. You see in the ancient world, in the first century world, the emperors made one thing clear. They wanted everyone over the empire to know who's in control. And so you would find this, you'd reach in your pocket, you'd point, pull out a coin, and guess whose picture is on the coin? The emperor. You'd be walking through town in, in statues and in architecture, and, and wherever you seemed to walk, you would always find something staring at you. It was the image of the emperor. He wanted you to know who was in power and who was in control. Everywhere, every time, every place. Look at the language Paul uses of Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. And this, this frame, this, this imagery, is not just unique to Colossians. It's all over the New Testament. Some people have claimed that the, the church just kind of grew into this theology later on. It's been there. Remember when Matthew tells you the story of Jesus' birth? Joseph is trying to get his bearings and figure out what's going on. And an angel says, look, Joseph, take a deep breath. What you're seeing is a prophecy from Isaiah. A virgin shall conceive, shall give birth, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. You remember what Emmanuel means? God is with us. And so as you read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is making this claim and showing you what it looks like for God's presence to live and move among us. And when you encounter Jesus, Matthew is saying you are encountering God himself. It's not just Matthew. John does the same thing. When Jesus is drawing closer to the cross, and he gathers his disciples together. In John 14 through 16, he has this really intimate moment. He tells them, I'm going to die, and I'm going to leave. And, and Thomas, chapter 14, Thomas says, hey, show us the Father. You remember Jesus' reaction to that? 
if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. My, my Father and I, we're one. And so when Paul is walking through this poem, he says this same thing. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That when you look on Jesus, you are seeing everything that there is to see in the divine that God has revealed. And so, Paul moves through this language. Because Christians believe and Paul believed that we serve the God revealed in Jesus Christ. So that if you want to know what God thinks about us, about humanity, watch Jesus. If you wonder what God thinks about sinners, watch Jesus. If you wonder what God thinks about outcasts, watch Jesus. If you wonder what Jesus, what God thinks about religious arrogance, look at Jesus. If you wonder what God thinks about political corruption, look at Jesus. If you want to know what, what the access to life and wisdom and truth and all of that is, Look at Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. This is why we make the claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We don't say it to be arrogant, but Jesus is not just a good moral teacher. Jesus is not just a good philosopher. Jesus is not just another influential person in the history of the world. Jesus is God. He is the image of the invisible God. And if you make that claim about Jesus, and if you believe that about Jesus, then it makes no sense to say, but what other faith, what other belief, what other philosophical system is okay. It cannot possibly work that way. And so to the church in Colossae that's struggling and wrestling with, I don't know, do we need another, do we need to know another angel or do we need to worship another spirit? Or what about these dominions and thrones in this invisible world out there? Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Don't look anywhere else. There's a famous theologian in the 20th century by the name of T.F. Torrance Prior to being a theologian, he was a chaplain. He served in the Italian army and he was standing next to a dying man. And he tells the story of this man dying who asked him the question, Is God really like Jesus? And the man was dying, he said. And the question on his mind is, Who am I about to meet on the other side? Is God really like all those stories of Jesus? And Torrance replied with a wonderful response. God is indeed really like Jesus. There is no unknown God behind the back of Jesus for us to fear. You want to know who God is? You want to know what God is like? You want to know what God thinks and does and wants and desires? Paul says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When you look at Jesus, you are seeing God. Well, then the poet makes another incredible claim. 
Verse 16, in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, all things have been created through him and for him. Another New Testament scholar said, it is the beauty of creation, powerful and sweet, because Jesus made it that way. When the lavish and generous beauty of the world makes you catch your breath, remember, it's like that because Jesus. Now, Jim has talked about this philosophical argument of the first century world and previous to that. But this question about what holds everything together, what makes everything work. Why is gravity working today like it did yesterday? Why is air still circulating? Why can I still fill my lungs with air? And so philosophers and science are looking for the thing that explains everything. And Paul says, you have that. That's Jesus. Why are you looking for something else? Jesus He created everything, and he literally holds it together. So why would you you want anything else? There's this famous story from political science, 1980, New Hampshire. This newspaper wanted to host a debate. Some of you remember this. But they only wanted to host it between the two front-runners of the Republican Party, Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. And because of some rules of the debate, they couldn't do that. So Reagan's campaign, he paid for the debate. And then Reagan kind of underhandedly invited all the other contestants to come just instead of the two. Well, because of all the confusion that was going on at the beginning of the debate, Reagan started to make a statement, and the moderator cut him off. You guys remember this story? You remember what Reagan said? Mr. Green, I am paying for this microphone. (laughs) It was a brilliant moment in campaign history. Well, when Paul writes Colossians, and he hears this church arguing over, do you need spirits and angels and all these other things? Paul says he created everything. The, The best they can do is second best. Anything other than Jesus at best is second best. He created it. He made it. He's holding it together. So why worry about some angel or demon or or anything out there? If you have Jesus, you have the answer. He made it. And you notice also, there's a philosophical world. God is not equal to creation. He is separate and above creation. And Paul says, whenever you see something incredible, it was Jesus who put it there. Whenever you experience anything healthy, it's Jesus who holds it together. So as he moves through this with the church, he wants them to see that they already have the answer. You don't have to keep looking. Now, he does use this word. It's an important word. And there's been a long history of theological debate over it. Paul uses the word firstborn. And that's caused a little bit of angst among people. 
But the word firstborn has different meanings. And just to make things fun and give us something to fight about, Paul uses both of them. Because <laughs> sometimes firstborn means chronologically speaking. You may be the firstborn child in your family. That means you came first. And, and when Paul says Jesus is firstborn over all creation, I don't think Paul is saying Jesus was created first and then everything else, because that word can be used a second way. Firstborn is in place of prominence. He's the first over everything else. So God places him above everything that's been created. But, just to give us an argue about, Paul uses the second meaning. Because he says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And now, he switches gears. Because Jesus was the first of many more to come. That what happened in Jesus, as we've said several times, what happened in Jesus and his resurrection is going to happen to all God's people. And so as Paul begins to unpack this image of Jesus, he moves to make the argument that not only is he the image of the invisible God, not only is he the cause of all creation, he is the head of the church. This is his body. And it goes back to that philosophical argument that in the ancient world, some people made the claim that, that God was the stuff of the universe. That if you poked matter, if you poked stuff, you're poking God because God is everywhere. God is everything. And no, Paul says God is separate from the matter of creation. He put it there, but that's not equal with God. But you want to know where God is? His body is the church. That as you live and you experience what God has done through Jesus and God brings you into the church, Jesus is the head of the church. And that's where we fit into the story. If Jesus is the head of that church, you don't need angels or, or dietary laws or any of that. You need Jesus. Because Jesus is the answer you're looking for. And then this beautiful poem moves towards one other big moment. That Jesus is the cure for creation's curse. He is, Paul says, the firstborn from the dead. And that it's God's eternal plan to reconcile everything in heaven and on earth through what happened with Jesus on the cross. And that is where Paul invites us into this remarkable story. Because as, as magnificent as creation is, and as wonderful as all things are, we're all too familiar that things are broken. And Paul says we were part of that ourselves, that we were estranged, that we were hostile in our mind, and we were doing evil deeds. But because he's the image of the invisible God, because he created all things, and all things were created through him and by him and for him, 
God has reached back into creation to reconcile creation. And to reconcile you with God. And he was so serious about that. That he died on a cross to make it possible. This poem and this movement. Is Paul's preemptive strike. To anyone who comes along and says Jesus is fine. Jesus is okay. We'll take Jesus and we'll, ha- we'll add him to everything else that we do in our life. That we'll set Jesus on the mantle next to our household gods. Or we'll set Jesus up there. Maybe we can make room for him in the pantheon or sneak him in in the backyard. And, and we can worship him. It- I'm not against you worshiping Jesus. But does it hurt anything to just cover your, your bets here and just make sure and worship the other gods? And Paul says, why would you do that? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the one that created everything and holds everything together. If you have Jesus, you have your answer. Sounds familiar in our culture. You Christians are fine people, and what you do at your church building on Sunday morning, keep it to yourselves. But the real power, the real thing that controls the universe is money, or political power, or influence, or other great philosophies and science and all these other things. So you do what you want to do, bring it along as long as you keep it in its place. Paul says you cannot Jesus in a corner. He is above all, through all, in all. He created everything. He is God among us. Why would you want less than that? There was a few weeks ago, I was on a Saturday, I was here at the church building finishing a project, and the, the doorbell rang to the church building. I thought it was one of you guys stopping by to drop something off or pick something up, so I I went and I opened the door, and and there on the other side of the door stood this young man and this young woman. They were walking by the church building. And he said, we need to talk to somebody. So I invited him in. They sat down in the foyer. And he began to explain to me that his girlfriend, she's in her 20s, has been hearing voices. And these voices are keeping her up at night, and these voices are saying threatening things to her. And he said, I told her we need to go to the church and talk to someone at the church. And she said, the voices are telling me if I go in that church, they will blow me up. He said, can you tell her to quit worrying about that? What I wanted to say is, did they give you a time that that might take place? (laughs) What do you say? I know what I was thinking. Where's Newell when you need him? I asked her, how long have you been experiencing this and hearing these things? And it had been off and on for several weeks. Thankfully, I had been working on Colossians for another project and another thing. 
And I said, ma'am, you, you obviously need to meet with someone who has more specialty in this and can help you with this. But do you believe in Jesus? She said, yeah. I said, can I tell you that Jesus created everything? That Jesus holds everything together. And that whatever those voices are telling you, that voice is nothing compared to the voice of Jesus Christ. I didn't know what else to say. But I think that's what Paul is saying in Colossians. Don't let anyone walk in and tell you you're not good enough. That you need to do more. That you need to have some special vision. That you need to work harder. If you already have Jesus, you have your answer. And anything other than Jesus, at best, is second best. Because he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the one in whom, through whom, for whom everything was made. He is the firstborn from the dead. And through him, God is reconciling all of creation. There's your answer. There's your answer. Let's pray. God, we praise you for Jesus. And we thank you that he was the image of you on earth. We thank you that through him we understand you better. Thank you, Lord, that he was willing to reconcile everything to him through his death. And so, Lord, we pray for the courage to believe that and to live that out in a culture and in a world that is telling us he's not enough. Lord, remind us that he is more than enough. And help our faith to be lived out, pointing everyone to Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So this morning, we invite you to the invitation of Jesus Christ, who is all of those things Paul claims in Colossians who has done everything Paul says he's done in Colossians. And it will keep every promise that Paul says has been made in Colossians. If you want the answer to everything in your life, you need Jesus to believe in him, to give your life to him, to put him on in baptism, to be raised in which he lives through you as he works to reconcile all things to him. If if we can help you do that this morning, we invite you to that invitation while we stand and sing together.